The reading this morning is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 3, reading verses 1 to 16. Peter heals the crippled beggar. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. Now a man, crippled from birth, was being carried to the temple gate, called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg, from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognised him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Peter speaks to the onlookers. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One, and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith, in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Amen. May God add his blessing to this reading of his holy word. I'm deliberately outside this morning because our passage takes us there. When Peter and John went to pray, they didn't go to church. They didn't have a church. There were no church buildings. 
In the end of chapter two, we learned that they were doing masses of things in homes. They were teaching and learning and sharing and breaking bread and, and being together and enjoying fellowship. But we also learn that they were doing some things in the temple courtyards. The temple courtyards wasn't a Christian building where they could come together as believers. It was an open public space. It was the place where the traders came and the pilgrims came and the festival crowds. It was the place where the rabbis taught and the poor came and the rich came, the beggars came, the religious came and the tourists came as well. And there it was that Peter and John came, as the early Christians did, into that public space to share and to pray together. When we hear the word mission, we sometimes think, how do we get people to come to church? That's our mission, to get people to come to church. But the Bible doesn't think like that at all. We seem to have made the great commission into the great come mission. How does the words of Jesus' great commission begin? Go into all the world and preach the good news. The clue's in the first word, go. How do we go and engage in the public spaces, in the high streets, in the open places, rather than sit in our church and ask people to come? Well, actually, we don't have to go all the time because one of the truths about Christians is, strangely, they don't live in churches. You live in homes and families. You go to workplaces, well, most of the time anyway. We engage with friends through social media and other things as well. So our challenge as Christians is how do we live out, share, be the church in those open places, in life itself. So our passage begins with Peter and John going into the public sphere, into the temple courtyard. It's, it's a bit quieter around here. And there Luke tells us of the first encounter that the church had with a specific individual. He could have told us many stories. They'd already preached to 3,000 people, many of whom had become believers. He could have told the story of someone who was influential, someone who went on to do great things, someone who was rich, someone who was powerful. But instead, Luke tells us the story of Peter and John meeting a lame beggar, a nobody. And yet he is the first encounter in the book of Acts. We don't know much about the man. He'd been lame since he was born. 40 years, Luke tells us. So he was, well, I'm afraid in those days terms, an old man. Well, yeah. So here he is. And he's got his routine. He's brought every day to the temple courtyard. He's brought there because it's a place where pilgrims are coming and they have a duty as as Jewish people to give alms to, to the needy, so he's wise, he's coming to a place where folk are likely to be a little more generous than elsewhere. But he's not expecting anything to change. No one did. It had gone on for 40 years, his whole life, just being lame and being brought and asking for money. Until that day where two men met him. And here's something else that's interesting. Peter and John, we're told, went to pray. And yet as they met that man, 
They must have realised at that time that this was where they were to encounter God that day. He wasn't a distraction from some religious activity. You know the story of the Good Samaritan with the priest and the Levi rushing off to Jerusalem to pray and passing a man by the street that's a distraction. They didn't do that. They recognised that the encounter that they were going to have with God that day as they went to pray was actually going to be in the presence of this man. They were going to bring Jesus into this place, into this everyday relationship. I wonder if we do that when we set out for our days, as we ask today, where will I meet God? Where will I see God? Do we look for him in the encounters that we will have, in the people that we will meet, in what we might learn from them or give to them and how we might grow together. And when they prayed for that man, they prayed in the name of Jesus Christ, of Nazareth, bringing Jesus into that relationship. I wonder that they were doing more than that as well, though. You see, they distinctly referenced Nazareth. Why Nazareth? They could have said Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Lord of the world. They could have called him any number of things, but they referenced Nazareth. And I wonder what it was because they remembered when they had met Jesus, the carpenter's son. Luke tells us the first thing that he did after he called the disciples to follow him was he healed a leper and he healed a lame man. You see, meeting people like this lame man was exactly what Jesus did. And if they were to go out being people that were Jesus people and looking for Jesus and praying to Jesus, then this is exactly the sort of thing that they would expect to do. Those Jesus men doing Jesus work. Do we have that expectation today? That actually it's not just about meeting people, but it's particularly about meeting the most vulnerable people, the folk that most people would ignore and discount because that's exactly what Jesus did. It seems very basic, but I I keep coming back to the fact that to be a follower of Jesus is to follow Jesus, to follow his example, to do the things that he did. And for these men that had been with Jesus, they were just continuing what their master had taught them to do in the name of Jesus Christ, who also was a nobody from Nazareth. I love verse 4 here, where it says simply, Peter looked straight at him and John, and they said to him, look at us. They made eye contact. They saw him. They noticed him. You know, people might, as they went in, see beggars. Sometimes, like we do, beggars are there and because we're so used to seeing them, we don't notice them at all. Or even when money is given, the individual isn't noticed. He's just a beggar and you give your money and you move on. But the two men that day stopped. They looked. You matter. It was a very Jesus thing to do, to affirm just that person to take time to see them. You have value. The moment in our society, we have a whole realignment as we think about black lives and racism and all that's going on. 
is we're being encouraged to hear the voices of people who have often been ignored, to hear the prejudice and the discrimination and sometimes the violence that they have suffered, to take note. One of the responses to that by some folk has been to say, well, black lives matter, sure, but all lives matter. But actually, when we notice the voices of the most vulnerable, when we hear a portion of the community that's experienced such pain, and when we say to folk who are often downtrodden or ignored or neglected, you matter. You matter as a group, you matter as individuals, and we will listen to your story. In doing that, we are affirming that all life matters, that no group should be ignored. So when we say black lives matter, I think we are saying all lives matter. But like Jesus, we are particularly wanting to attune our ears and our eyes to the stories of those that so often aren't heard and the pain and the discrimination that they experience. I have to confess that sometimes I struggle with political correctness, with the idea that we seem to organise our lives around the needs of one person and their particular, their particular experience of life. But a number of years I had, years ago, I had a, a, an experience that really brought it home to me. We'd gone to Poland and we'd gone to visit Auschwitz. And there we were being shown around the horrors of that concentration camp and told the story of what the Nazis had done. Realising that they had started by destroying the lives of the handicapped and the vulnerable, the disabled, and those that people thought were worthless in their society that were holding them back. And as we wandered round Auschwitz with a group of people that were from just about every European country, Americans as well, Poles and French, and as we went round, there was one woman in our group who was disabled. She was in a wheelchair. Now, Auschwitz isn't built like many historic sites for wheelchairs. It's not really disabled-friendly. And the amazing thing, though, was that the group stopped. We slowed down. We went at the pace of the woman in the wheelchair, and when it came to stairs, the men offered to lift her, to carry the wheelchair up the flights of stairs so that she could see what we were seeing. As we did that, I suddenly had one of those moments where something became very clear to me, that this was significant. Here were a group of modern Europeans and what we had decided to do almost instinctively was put the most vulnerable person right at the centre of who we were and what we were doing. We would go at their place so that they could be included. And we would reorganise our life and our time and what we would have the time to see and not see around that person. And in doing that, we did the opposite of what the Nazis did when they devalued and rejected the most vulnerable the most vulnerable lives matter because all lives matter. And Jesus should surely teach us that as we read the Gospels.
We talk about lots of gifts that we have in churches. We need preachers, we need teachers, we need youth leaders, we need all sorts of different types of people. But you know, one of the types of people I really think we need in church today, and we can all do this, is people who have the ministry of noticing people. People who can go into a crowd and they can instinctively find the person that that day is really struggling, is really suffering, and can affirm, affirm them and encourage them. Are we able, when we stop, when we gather, when we're able to gather again, to be able to walk into a room and not say, who would it be fun to talk to today? But actually, who might need me? Who can I help? Who can I listen to? Who can I notice? Who can I make eye contact with? Who can I affirm? Because that's surely what Jesus would do. So they look intently at the man, but the man wants cash. Sometimes that's where our conversations end, isn't it? Well, I can't help you. You've got a need, I can't make it, so off you go. They could so easily have done that at that point where we're actually rushing off to pray. You're looking for cash, we don't have any. It's an easy get out. There's a Pharisee, he's loaded, ask him. But they didn't do that because of this. They had confidence that they had something even better to offer. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. They had confidence that this Jesus was something that could transform this man's life, that could enrich it and give him life. I wonder for us as we think about mission, do we simply have the confidence that Jesus is worth knowing? That whatever else we have, and we don't have all the answers, we don't have all the resources, we do have Jesus. You know, it's easy for us to get connected with the money. What can we give? How much can we raise? What can we do for charities? Can we give folk a breakfast? These are good things to do. If Peter and John had had the money, I'm sure they'd have given the guy some money. But they had that confidence that they had something even better. They had Jesus. It's interesting when the people begin to ask what it is that's happened here and they're explaining it, that they keep coming back to this. You kept rejecting this Jesus. God glorified him. You wanted to kill him. You chose not the life that Jesus offered, but you chose a murderer, Barabbas. And yet God raised him from the dead. God wasn't going to be fobbed off. He was determined to give life to his people. And so he raised his son from the dead. Peter describes Jesus as the author of life. Notice that phrase. Look at the passage. See, the author of life. Now, there's many things that that might mean. The Bible says, the beginning of John's gospel, that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and all things were created by that word, by Jesus. Jesus there at the beginning of creation, the author of life. Paul talks about him as being the firstborn of creation. He is the image of God and we are made in the image of God, the author of life. Of course, there's another sense that it might mean about the life that we have now. Jesus came and he was full of life. He experienced life in him. He brought new things and excitement into life. John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 10, it's, Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and all its fullness. 
God wants to fill our lives with good things. He wants to bless us and enrich us. He's the author of that life. And of course, there's another sense that Jesus is the one who brings life from the dead. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. He is the author of life. And that's what they want to offer to that man that day. It's interesting at the end of the passage, verse 16, it says that the man was completely healed. That's not just the lameness, but it's God's shalom, God's holistic healing of every part of his life. Now, of course, in this life, not everybody is made physically whole, but God wants us to have life. Do we have confidence in that? Do we know that life? Are we excited about the life that Jesus gives us? And do we therefore have confidence that as we go out and love a world and see a world and hear a world, that whatever else we have to offer, we have Jesus and that matters. And so the basic thing is that we need to put Jesus at the centre of what we do as we go out, as we meet people, as we engage in life, putting Jesus at the centre, that we might start to do the things that Jesus did, but also have the confidence in the power of Jesus to change lives today. There's an apocryphal story that's told about the Pope and St Thomas Aquinas. One day the Pope was in the Vatican counting house, counting out all the money, the silver and gold of the church. But in walked the wise St Thomas. And the Pope says to St Thomas, See Thomas, never again can the church say, Silver and gold have I none. And Thomas looked at the Pope and said, Yes, but neither can she say, Rise up and walk. Sometimes we celebrate all the things we have as a church. We have a great building, we have finances, we have resources, we have talents. But we forget that the main thing that we have to offer the world is Jesus Christ. And if we don't have confidence in that, in that power to change lives and change societies, then we have absolutely nothing. So what can we take away from all of this? I think there's three critical points. The first is that we need to, as Christians, engage. We need to see Jesus in every part of our lives, in every encounter that we have. This is going to be a hard thing to say, but I, I sometimes wonder that at the moment God is blessing us by taking our building away. Enabling us to think about what church is, not in the context of the religious stuff that we do, but in the context of the rest of life. And maybe he's also taking away a lot of our encounters with people in our social isolation, so that we realise how valuable those things are. The value of the church as it gathers in its relationships rather than its buildings or its services or its meetings. And the value of every conversation that we have particularly with those that might be struggling or vulnerable in our society. It's in learning to love again and to care again that we discover Jesus. 
and having confidence that the one who was dead and is now alive still has the power to change lives and communities and relationships. One of the prophecies that is given in the Old Testament that speaks of that day when God will make society and the world and everything right says this. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue sing for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert and the burning sand become a pool and the thirsty ground bubbling springs. That day, a man went away leaping and jumping and praising God. Do we have a heart in our day to see lives changed like that into joy? Our lives together and our community and our society. Let's be encouraged by what we believe together that Jesus Christ can do. Amen.